we are in the book of Acts going through it, and now we're in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Here and now the word of the Lord. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mockingly said, They are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Amen. You may be seated. Pentecost. It's a wonderful time in the life of God's people, initiated by God's direction to Moses back in the days of the wilderness wandering, before they ever harvested a harvest or ever planted a vineyard, or ever built a house, or ever did anything like that in the promised land. In the wilderness, God gave them a festival that they would keep. And it was a festival that was all about the harvest, the successful completion of the growing season, the time when the grain was gathered in, and when the barley harvest and the wheat harvest was complete, they would come together for a festival that had been anticipated for the seven weeks of the harvest, for a week of weeks, 49 uh, days. And on the 50th day, and that's what Pentecost means, it means 50. On the 50th day, they came together for this great celebration. Well, now we come to the times of Christ and Christ has lived among his people. He's taught them. He has walked with them. He's performed mighty works. He has been crucified, buried, raised from the dead. He continued to walk with them, eat with them, teach them, and be with them for an additional 40 days. And then he had ascended to the Father, telling them to tarry in Jerusalem. And so instead of going back to Galilee, where most of them were from, they stayed in Jerusalem and they waited. And we saw the last couple of weeks, what took place as they were waiting that what they thought was an indefinite period of time turned out it was 10 days, bringing them to the 50th day, Pentecost. And now we have the phenomenon of the languages. The languages. And this is the most fascinating part because the Scripture says that there were dwelling in Jerusalem... Jews, devout men from every nation under the sun, <laughs> every place you could possibly imagine. 
They had people there in Jerusalem. And there came the sound. We spoke last week of the sound. The sound is of the mighty rushing wind that filled the place. And we saw how this, as Peter will explain to us in an upcoming passage in his sermon, this is the fulfillment of the great promise of the coming of the Spirit of God to dwell in and among and with His people. That's why we said we believe this took place not in the upper room, but in the temple. The Spirit of God always came to the temple in the Old Testament and filled the temple and the holy place. And now the Spirit of God comes to Herod's temple and fills with this mighty rushing wind. And this phenomenon, this sound, is overwhelming to the throng that was there. The throng was there for the Pentecost celebration. It was a big day. It was a day of holy convocation, that is, coming together. It was a time when, when many, many people were there. Many of the people had been there for the full 50-day period. They'd come from the Passover in which Christ had been crucified. They had stayed for the first fruits, the day that Christ was was raised from the dead. And now they had stayed this entire time visiting with friends and relatives. They had traveled long distances. They'd come from all around the known world and they were enjoying this time. Not only that, they were people that lived there, had connections to these places. One of the great things that you'll find in the Old Testament, which in a way God put it as a punishment to Israel for not keeping the Sabbaths and not, not obeying His laws and not remaining faithful to the covenant, God threatened to them. He said, I'll scatter you to the four winds. I'll disperse you over the globe. I'll take you out of the land, out of Jerusalem, and I'll put you in all of these other places. And that's precisely what had happened. In the 700s BC, the Assyrians had come and had displaced large, large portions of the population into the regions north and east of Judah. The Babylonians had come in the 500s and had displaced large numbers of God's people back to Babylon and then to Persia. Later on, the Greeks came and they dispersed large numbers of people, of God's people, out of the land of Canaan, away from Jerusalem and Judea, all the way down into Egypt and into Africa and around the eastern Mediterranean. Time and time again, God's people had been dispersed and had been scattered all sorts of places. And now the Scripture says that they were Dwelling, and that's what that word dwelling means. It means to house together. <laughs> it's the word synoikos. It means to be together in the house. There were people together in a house. I, I don't want to make too much of this, but can you imagine having guests? You live in Jerusalem. You've got a nice house. But then you've got all these relatives <laughs> and friends that have come in for the Pentecost and the Passover and all the rest of it. And they've stayed and they've stayed and they've stayed and the weeks have gone by and they're loving being back home. They're having the time of their life. What a wonderful experience for them. But you're there dwelling with them as in the house together. 
That was probably the phenomenon. We know it was a huge number. In fact, tradition tells us this was on Solomon's porch, the great portico that stretched across the east side of the temple, the big porch that went all the way across, looking over the valley, the Kidron Valley, looking down that steep, steep wall and ravine that was there. A magnificent place just be, beyond the eastern gate where the, the Lord had come and gone the week before He was crucified, time and again going to Bethany and back and out to the Mount of Olives and back and out to the Kidron Valley and back. And now they're all assembled there in this experience happens. And here was the experience. They heard the mighty works of God in their own tongues, in their own languages. Now let me just point out for a moment that what we're talking about here are indigenous languages. If there's an element of the unknown tongue, it is unknown to the speaker because the speakers here were the disciples, those that had been in the upper room, those that had moved, about 120. These were experienced preachers. Christ had trained 70 of them to go be preachers, to pick up a bag and, a, and, and some sandals and a staff and go out and preach. And he had trained them to be preachers. The disciples, 12 of them, were trained preachers. So we've got 80-something preachers here for sure. And I imagine in the number were, as mentioned in the previous passage, the women. And they bore faithful witness to what they had seen and heard. So we have about at least a hundred or so preachers, witnesses. The Lord had said, you shall be my witnesses. And this is precisely where they started it. And they're telling the story. Probably had groups gathered around them. I don't think the PA systems were quite that powerful in that day. So uh, groups would gather around these individual preachers and they were all in this huge mass and there was a buzz and there was a, an excitement and they were talking about the things of Christ and the things of God and, and, and the mighty experience of the filling of the Spirit coming into not only the temple there but also into, into their group. And there were thousands that audited this event. The speakers were predominantly Galilean, speaking with an accent. Remember Peter's accent got detected there by the fire with the servant girl? Remember that on the morning of the crucifixion? She said, you say you've got a Galilean drawl. He did. The Galileans tended to pronounce the gutturals a little differently than the typical Judean. They're preaching, they're teaching, they're witnessing, they're testifying, they're exclaiming, they're proclaiming that which they had been involved in in the last few weeks. They couldn't help it. They had to talk about that crucifixion. They had to talk about that burial. They had to talk about that resurrection and Christ appearing to them in all these places and times and Christ ascending and all the things that's happened. They're just telling the story of the mighty works of God, how He healed, how He taught, how He preached, how He loved. And they're talking about Jesus. That's the subject. 
and his mighty works, his saving works, his empowering works, his works of rescue, his works of mercy and grace in the hearts and lives of all of those that had come in contact with him over these past few years. And they're talking. And they're talking in Galilean Aramaic. And yet these people were from all over the world. Let me just not run over that too quickly. I've kind of surveyed it out here. Let me look at my note for a moment here too. Here's the nations of the diaspora. Millions of Jews had been scattered throughout the world. The, The nations that are mentioned come from the east, the Parthenians, the Medes, Of course, the Medes are always aligned with the Persians, the Persians with the Babylonians, the Elamites, and it's summarized with that whole region called Mesopotamia. They spoke Aramaic, and then they had their individual national and ethnic dialects. The Assyrian conquest had taken them there. The Babylonian conquest had taken him there. The rule of the Seleucid dynasty of of, uh, Alexander the Great had taken them there. And there they were, but now they had come to Jerusalem. What we have here is a picture kind of the whole world. That's the north and the east. And then Asia Minor's mentioned. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. These were the provinces of Asia Minor. We, we saw this list when we looked at 1 Peter back last year. This is the whole region there south of the Black Sea. In fact, tradition tells us by the second century BC, many... Jews had moved beyond Pontus and had actually crossed the Black Sea and gone into the modern Crimea. And that's the the area moving, of course, on up into the Ukraine and into Russia. This is the the direction of the uh, uh, diaspora in that area. I'd like to point out that this particular region of the world contained the capital of Christianity eventually, Constantinople. This is the area that had the seven churches of Asia that that John wrote to. This is the area of of the primary early ministry of the evangelistic and missionary efforts of the Apostle Paul. In fact, many of the letters in our New Testament were addressed to the churches of Asia. And then a listing of North Africa. North Africa, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Libya back in those days went all the way down into the, not only the Mediterranean coast, you remember your geography, but it went all the way down into the center of Africa. Libya was one of those huge unexplored territories by the Roman legions. And it was much larger than just the little country we know today, even though that country's plenty big. The whole region here is turning toward Africa. And it was in Africa on the northern coast that the great city of Alexandria, the intellectual capital of the Greek-speaking world, the place where Josephus and Philo had been, the place where the Septuagint had been translated. Philo tells us that there were one million Jews, two of the five boroughs of Alexandria, two of them were entirely Jewish ghettos. Huge numbers of Jews had had migrated to that part of the world. Alexandria in Egypt had always been considered a place of refuge for the people of God. From the days of Abraham going down there when the Hittites got a little little angry and testy. The sons of Jacob had gone down there in the famine. Jeremiah had fled to Egypt in the days of the Babylonian captivity. 
Jesus went into Egypt in the days when Herod was killing the infants. Out of Egypt have I called my son. This is the great area of the African continent. And then finally is mentioned Rome, Europe, and Arabia. In Rome, there were seven synagogues by the second century BC. In fact, one of the interesting things about Rome, when you read Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul had not been to Rome yet. He had intended to go and he was determined to go and he eventually did go. But when he wrote the epistle, he had not been yet. But there was a thriving church in Rome that received his letter. And many believe that some of these people that were there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem had been the people who had gone back to the imperial capital of Rome and taken with them the story, the witness of the mighty works of God, the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ. And then finally, as mentioned, is the Arabians, the Nabataeans, that huge, massive land that is south and east of Judea that involves large, large numbers of people spread out over a long, long period there in that great peninsula and the regions beyond. So what you have here, if you look at it geographically, you have the four winds. You have the north, the east, the west, Rome, the south, Africa. You have the four winds. You have people coming in from the four winds. What is happening here? What is being happened is the fulfillment of the great promise that God had always made. God had said to His people, I will scatter you in judgment, but I will regather you in salvation. And that's what you have here is the regathering of Israel. The bringing them back together to one fold, to one shepherd, to be under the sound of the gospel preaching. And in so doing it, he completely reversed the curse of Babel, wherein the nations had been scattered by the diffusion of the language. Now they have been brought together and united by the commonality of the preaching of the gospel. In a moment, we'll recite together the Apostles' Creed, and in there we'll say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Sometimes people get a little nervous and they say, oh, wait a minute, we're Protestants, we're not Catholic. Catholic means universal, worldwide, all nations, everybody. It's interesting to me, in talking to a young priest one time, I, I pointed out that if you're Roman Catholic, it's a contradiction in terms. Because <laughs> Catholic is universal worldwide. Roman is very geographical, very provincial, and very pinpointed on the map. You're either Roman or Catholic. You can't be Roman Catholic. Now I understand what they mean by it, but let's just let words mean what they mean. The Catholic Church is the worldwide church. It's every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity. And the gospel goes completely wide to the world. There is no discrimination in the gospel the gospel is not the province of white man's privilege. The gospel belongs to every descendant of Adam. Every person, regardless of any 
differentiation that we might make culturally, ethnically, racially, economically, educationally, the gospel goes. And that's what I guess I'm going to sum up by saying. Here's what happens. It takes a miracle. And the miracle it takes is God opening the ears. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It was not a miracle of speech. Those Galileans were drawling out the gospel. But every ear was opened in their native tongue where the clarity was there. Sans translators without any computer programs from language to language. They heard the gospel, the mighty works of God, the story of Christ. They heard it everyone from all over the earth at one time and at one place heard the gospel. And they began there, the one holy, apostolic, Catholic church. In this time and in this place and in this moment. Oh, I think about old Jeremiah. Back there when they weren't listening to him, when their faces were frowning, when they were turning and walking away, when they were threatening him with his life, when they were throwing him in the dungeon, when he had to flee to Egypt, old Jeremiah said, Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. And this is precisely what is happening. Now let me just make an application before I'm done. I believe that you will hear the gospel and understand it. And it will be in your native tongue. And it will strike the chords of need in your heart when the Lord opens your ears. When the Lord gives you, by His wonderful mercy and grace, the capacity to hear the mighty works of God, the gospel in your own language when it comes to you with every syllable and every nuance and every blessed benediction. Has the gospel been heard and believed by you? It's interesting, the, the, the reactions. I just sort of circled them here in my Bible. Uh, the multitude was bewildered. I suppose that would be uh, something we could discuss. They were amazed and they were astonished. Uh, they were amazed and they were perplexed and asked, what does this mean? What is this? That's the inquiring heart wanting to know more and more about Jesus. But alas, there is a mention. Others said, mocking. Mocking. Let not that be you this morning. Be one who opens your heart and opens your ears to the gospel and says, what does this mean? What's this all about? Instead of one of those that'll just mock and say, this is crazy. You're drunk. Do not mock. Hear the word of the Lord and believe the mighty works of God in Christ Jesus.